Good morning. My name is Melissa, and I'm going to be reading the scripture for today's sermon, and I invite you to turn to Psalms 118. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength, my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. I'll just quickly pray. Lord God, we just thank you for your word. We thank you that you would just plant it deep within our hearts and that we know that your word does not return void. We give you all the praise and honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Do you know the presence of divinity? That's what the Lord's Day is for. To know and experience something of the divine. 
in our Genesis series, the final sermon being delayed until next week, I have opportunity to take us to the Psalms. And I've chosen this Psalm, doing what Barry likes to do most, to go to the Psalms and talk about some of the necessities of the soul, some of the things that need to flow deep in our heart, some of the streams that need to be running as we gather together for worship each and every week, working through some of the fundamentals that we can't take for granted in all of the things that we try to engage on, all of the things that we try to instruct in to make sure that we are agreed on the fundamentals. And so, like a good parent who told us the same things over and over and over again, and it seemed like in certain seasons of life, all of a sudden we'd go, oh yeah, that makes sense. Even though we'd heard it a hundred times before. I'm gonna say nothing that I have uh, never said before. Nothing that is profound, nothing that is novel or new. But some of, as I say, some of the fundamentals and some of the assumptions that we uh, would be wrong to make about the purposes and the reasons for which all of us come and gather on a Lord's Day in order to worship. Sunday, the Lord's Day, is a day of orientation for God's people. I hope you can feel that already. There's some orientation going on in your soul. Because we need it, all of us do. You're going to note some barryisms today. But, you know, I'm just a soul trying to find my way. Trying to find my path in things like gathering with God's people, worshiping a, an almighty, omnipotent God, trying to understand the gospel, trying to apply it to my life, trying to make it bear fruit in the world in, in which I live. And, and weekly finding the rhythms, weekly finding the, the rhythms that, that help me to live and to thrive and to grow as a Christian. One of the growing convictions that I have in my life as I've grown in the Lord and over the course of many decades is that the Lord's Day is special. And it's special because, first and foremost, our Lord is alive. And the reason that Jesus was raised from the grave on a particular day of the week is for our eternal salvation. It is finished. But our lives aren't finished. They're living and their needs. And so the Lord was raised from the grave on a particular day of the week historically because of God's mercy to us, knowing that we would need on a weekly basis to come into the presence of that same power. It's not a lawful thing. I hope you're not here because you have to be here. I hope you're here because you get to be here. It's not law, but yet it's at the same time necessary. And it's something that flows out of the life of the Christian, not codified in the law of the scriptures, but given to us in the wisdom of scripture and in the pattern of God's people through the years. And so this week, take a step back from our regular series, as I said, and remind ourselves of some of the reasons why we gather. And it is with diversity that we gather, all different kinds of conditions, all different kinds of situations from which we gather. But there is one common denominator that binds us all together, that binds God's people together. Did you, did you notice in the first few verses that the, the breadth of God's people is described, as it says, three times? And I won't ask you to repeat anything. I'm, I'm just noting what is in the scripture. But it says three times, let... Let the house of Israel say, the steadfast love of the endures forever. Let, 
Let the house of Aaron say, the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say it. The steadfast love of the, endure, uh, of the Lord endures forever. And it's the, all of the, the diversity of, of, that is described there, being bound together with the same common denominator. They need to say it, not just believe it, but they need to gather together and they need to say it. Can you imagine all of the angelic beings in heaven who are gathered around the throne of God and are eternally, not eternally, from since their creation, mindful of the incredible beauty and the presence and the majesty of the Lord, looking down upon us as God's saints and his people saying, you need to say it. <laughs> say it. The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. Come on, like a, a, a parent with a child. My child, you need to say something. <laughs> it's usually your story is what we need to say. But sometimes there's just something about the human condition. You need to say something. And God's people to gather with this thing that, that binds them all together. The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. And so, not wanting to make any assumptions. You know, sometimes in, in churches, things are, are odd in tragic ways in the connections between people and the habits of, of, of people and sometimes I believe it's because we don't cover the fundamentals enough and we make too many assumptions, particularly about this one thing that is so significant, the purpose of worship. The purpose of worship is not for good people to be told how good they are. Is that why you're here this morning? The pastor's going to just affirm me, tell me how great I am. Worship isn't to tell bad people how bad they are. Some of you expect that when you come to church. You're a sinner and a loser. And that's all that's ever said. We're left in the law and we're never brought to the gospel. You know, I, I like to wander around <clears throat> before the service begins at all three of our service. And it's, it's, it's a wonderful privilege just to be able to connect with people as they come in. But I realize that we do come in in a diversity of conditions. Some of you are bored already, I can tell. It's only 5 to 11, and they're already <laughs> bored. And that's what you're expecting. Some of you are scared. You're intimidated. I hope he doesn't look at me. Some of you are broken. And all of the different conditions with which people come, and, and this is so significant for God's people to understand why we, we gather. I used to like to play on ice as a kid, you know, thin ice, and, and to, to, you know, the sound of cracking ice? It's an addictive game that prairie children play because it just sounds amazing. And yet you don't want to play the game too far, right? And sometimes coming to church for people is a little bit like walking out on thin ice. You're just not quite sure if it's going to be solid ground for you. It depends what they're talking about, right? Hope they're talking about money. I'm dirt poor. Oh, that's solid ice for me, you know? Those dirty, rotten, rich people? Solid ground. Th thick ice. I can drive my four by four out on that or what if he's talking about prayer though what if he's what if he's talking about evangelism oh no that's that's thin ice for me i'm gonna i'm gonna go right to the bottom right away. i'm gonna get beat up and bruised really really bad you know there there's only one common need that all of us come with that that makes church work that binds us together with the proper expectations and the expectation that we should all have is to see God. And the responsibility of those who lead us is to get out of the way and for us to be able to, to see God. 
to be inwardly renewed, to be anchored in our soul, to be sealed again by the Holy Spirit, to have the authority of the word of God ring in our ears, to be able to come into the presence of God's people. And I, and I hope you feel it when you come and gather with us today that, that it, it, it's over all, everything else, that you come in and you go, oh, I'm finding and looking for rest in divinity. It's not about how good you are. It's not about how bad you are. It's about all of us finding the same God. And so here's the main point from what I would like to draw. I'm going to be looking particularly in a couple of moments at verse 6 that says, the Lord is on my side. What can man do to me? But this is the main point that I want you to leave with today. That, that, and it has to do with Christian worship because it's something that we're so familiar with and can become too familiar with it and sometimes make assumptions about what it's all about. That Christian worship corresponds to the constant need for Christians to be reorientated to God. Reorientated to God. To find in God again and again and again our treasure. <laughs> our greatest good to smash our idols, to drop what is worthless, to be cleansed of all of our defilement, and to know something of the omnipotent power and the goodness of God. The children's theme this week is roar. <clears throat> I asked Christina a few days ago, what is it that you want the kids to leave with at the end of the week? What's, what's the message? And this is what she said. She said, life is wild but God is good. And it's a message that kids need to understand, and I hope and pray, thank you for praying with us that they get that message. But kids not only need to learn it, they need to experience it being lived out in the lives of adults. It needs to be affirmed, not simply through ideological truths that are taught to them. It needs to be experienced in real lives that are living it out. And that's why I feel so deeply about it. We are so tremendously influenced from the homes that we come from and the circumstances and the people that shape us. And so this is the adult version of Roar this week. The world is a disorientating place, but God is greater. Do you know what I'm talking about? We can tell the, the kids that life is wild, but kids... Children, not just children, but adults need to understand this, week in and week out, that the world is a disorientating place, but God is greater. Verse 6 says this, the Lord is on my side, I will not fear. It doesn't say I will not suffer. It says I will not fear. What can man do to me? Those are words of reorientation. They reorientate by contrasting and comparing the weight and the significance of two different realities. Those two realities are this, that there's something that we experience in the world from the human condition. That otherwise, a psalmist wouldn't say, what can man do to me? There's something of a reality that, that is being experienced. But the point of the words of the psalmist in the place of worship is to put the experience in the light of another experience. And that experience is God. It is a reorientating verse. You ever use a scale? 
You know, remember the old-fashioned scale? Some of you would know. They know the one that actually put weights on one side and you put, put something on one side and go, oh, that's pretty heavy. Then you put something on the other side and go, oh, no, no, that's heavy. Although these two things are put on a scale. And the purpose is to contrast them, the comparison of the significance of their difference in mass. I use a scale every morning. I weigh out 18 grams of coffee beans to make myself an espresso. Then I weigh out another 18 grams, because my wife wants a coffee too. But if I stood on that scale, I think, well, 18 grams, that's quite a bit of coffee. You know, the scale only has about a 30-gram capacity. But if I stood on the scale, in comparison, I'd be like, oh, that's different. That's heavy. And that's kind of the idea of this particular text, of contrasting these two realities, the power of man and the power of God. Psalm 56, verse 4, says something very, very similar. It says, Lord is on my side, I shall not fear. What can flesh do to me? Notice the difference in vocabulary. What can flesh do to me? Remember last week, Jacob dies, and he's flesh. All flesh is like grass. What can flesh do to me? It's like grass. It's just going to burn up and go away like everything else. The need in our worship is very simple. Two points. First of all, is that disorientation is a thing. And secondly, God is our helper. He is on our side. The first one, disorientation is is a thing. And the question, what can man do to me, is a very, very significant question that should not be quickly dismissed because the reality is that what man can do is significant. And it only becomes a small thing when it is seen in the light of the much greater thing of what God can do. That's why we gather for one single purpose. The fundamental. We need to see God. You don't have to read very far in the story of the scriptures of man and woman in sin before we see and begin to realize just exactly what man can do. Ask Abel what a Cain can do. Ask Elijah what a Jezebel can do. Ask a Bathsheba and a Uriah, her husband, what a backslidden David can do. Ask the priest at Nob what an angry Saul can do. You know that story? I just about weep every time I read it. It was a priest who gave a sword to David as he was fleeing from Saul. And later on, Saul came through and said, have you seen David? And uh, a man betrayed David to Saul. And in their innocence, Saul slaughtered all of them. Ask John the Baptist what a Herod can do. Ask Jesus what a Judas can do. Interesting, this psalm is something that Jesus would have sung immediately before he went to Gethsemane. And what man can do is they can, as builders, reject the stone that will become the cornerstone. They can swarm like bees. And this is the psalm that says, and this is the day. In Jesus' Gethsemane, this is the day that the Lord has made. What can man do to me? He can betray you? What would Herod's guards do to him? They can spit on you? They can mock you? What can Pilate's soldiers do to you? They can pierce you? They can crucify you? This was a Jewish song that was sung at the time of the Passover. And so when the Gospels say that they sung their final hymn and left for Gethsemane after they ate the meal together. 
this psalm would have been that particular hymn. What can man do to me? It's no wonder that the apostle who wrote the book of Hebrews also picks up these very words in chapter 13 and quotes also from Psalm 118, verse 6. In a church where their leaders had been imprisoned, some of them had been put to death for their faith in Christ. And the apostle quotes Psalm 118, verse 6. God is on our side. We will not be afraid. What can man do to us? Spurgeon wrote, what can man do to us? No more than God permits. <laughs> it was a favorite psalm of Luther, great reformer. As he considered very significantly, what can man do? What can emperors do? They can do a lot. What can princes of the land do? What can popes do who control everything? They can do a lot. Instead of psalms like this and words like this that Luther wrote that wonderful hymn, one of the most unsingable hymns ever, but a great hymn, A Mighty Fortress is our God. Even speaking of, in one of the verses of the devil, that this world, though devils filled with devils, threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, one word shall fell him. He's talking about the devil. I believe if we met the devil, we would meet a very powerful being. And it's an incredibly significant thing to say that one word shall fell him. Like the little kitty cat that you see on a huge, great big shadow on the wall that looks like a lion. Right? Terrified. And then it's put in its proper perspective. What can man do to me? Consider just one small part of the human anatomy, the tongue. What has your tongue done this week? Man, mine, mine does a lot of foolish things. It can deceive, it can lie, it can threaten. Consider all the social structures that the epistles point out so very, very clearly and call us to walk in particular ways. Why, why is that so? What can a master do to a slave? <laughs> they can beat you, they can oppress you. What can a slave do to a master? They can lie to you, they can steal from you. They can betray you. What can a child do to a parent? That, that cuts close. What can a parent do to a child? Cuts even closer. What can man do to us? What can a husband do to a wife? What can a wife do to a husband? They create the stuff of anger, the stuff of bitterness, the stuff of disorientation when it comes to the kingdom of God and our souls. Consider that we live in a culture. What can man do to us? We live in a culture that show often, so often shows the marks of darkness. I've often said this, that parts of culture, it feels like, are just the thin gloves of the devil handling us. When you consider its amusements and its power to entertain and its vanity and its wickedness. So the question of what can man do to me is that it can leave us stunned. It can leave us perplexed. It can leave us bruised. It can leave us defiled, broken in darkness, in vanity, in discouragement. And we're in need of hope. We're in need of cleansing. We're in need of healing. We're in need of mercy. We need light and we need wisdom. I've been reading through the book of Ecclesiastes. 
recently. And in consideration of that simple question, what can man do to me? It's a, it's a very, very significant book. As the writer of Ecclesiastes asked this question, what is done under the sun? <laughs> oh my, what is done under the sun? And all of the, all of the things that the book of Ecclesiastes works through, these words caught my attention, that it says that I found that God made man upright, but that they have sought out many schemes. Many schemes. That, that's, that's what man can do. Many schemes. Proverbs chapter 1. Come, let us gather together. Scheming. And so much so that the writer to the Ecclesiastes goes on to say this in chapter 8. That there is a vanity that takes place on earth. That there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. And I said, this is a vanity. You get that? You feel that way sometimes when you gather? That's a disorientation. Wait a minute, everything is upside down. Everything is backwards. The righteous are receiving the rewards of the wicked. And the wicked are carefree. Receiving it would seem, appear, under the sun, from my perspective, the reward of the righteous. And so we come often, we're trapped. <laughs> trapped, we're trapped sometimes in discouragement. Trapped sometimes in all forms of, of addiction. Patterns of thoughts and habits that aren't healthy for us. We're trapped. And we need a bigger entrapment. That's what we need. I've learned over the years it doesn't help to people say to people, stop that. Stop being trapped. Get out of that trap. They need a bigger entrapment. People who are ensnared need a bigger ensnarement. And that's exactly what the gospel's all about. Week in and week out. To ensnare us with the love of God. To ensnare us, to entrap us with the kindness of God. The second point is that God is on our side. He is our helper. Do you call upon him? In my distress, I called upon the Lord. It's not just for weak people that need a refuge. It's for, in all conditions, we need a treasure that is greater than every other. Consider again the deliberate juxtaposition of these words. The Lord is on our side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? It is a deliberate reorientation. All of the things that man can do to us, they don't stop necessarily, or they don't just go away. When you leave here today, you know what? Many of them, they'll be waiting for you. When you wake up tomorrow morning, you'll find many of the same things. But those same things by God's mercy in giving us a day are put into their proper perspective, seen through the right lens. And the fact that God is on our side is so very relevant to the context of daily life and the experiences of what we find in life. In other words, it's, it's faith. It's faith functioning. Faith that isn't just an idea but a faith that is an experience that is bearing fruit in our lives because of a reality that so, by its mass, so significantly outweighs anything else that weighs upon us. But let me ask this. I can't, I can't not ask this question and, and assume that you know the answer to it. 
What exactly is it that is on our side? If the Lord is on our side, what is it that is on our side? And the answer to that, of course, is divinity. Something so incomprehensibly great and something inexhaustibly good that needs to penetrate like you've told a child over and over and over again. And all of a sudden, one day, the light goes on. God is so great and God is so good. Something so great that all that we see around us, and this is something that, that is so helpful even during the week as we are out and about and we witness so many things in God's creation, that so great that everything that we see is created simply by the power of him merely speaking. The early church got this. Acts chapter 4. The church is gathered in a hole, in a hidden place, because the, the authorities are threatening to imprison and threatening to kill, and they gather to pray. And these are the first words that are recorded coming out of the persecuted church's mouth. Ah, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in it. That's the truth about God functioning. And something that is not only so great, but also so good. How do we know that the God on our side is good? He spared not what was most precious to him in order to save us. How do we know the love of God? First, John goes over that question over and over. This is what love is. That Jesus gave his life as a propitiation for our sins. And our fear is either symptoms of unbelief of these things or in ignorance of these things. Another question, how do I know that the Lord is on my side? Some of you come doubting that. I know you do. How can I be convinced that this Lord, this incomprehensibly great and inexhaustibly good is actually on my side? And that's a very significant question where the gospel is often misunderstood. See, God is not on your side because God is so impressed with you or me. <laughs> Don't come thinking that that's why God is on your side. I think I've had a good enough week. I think he's on my side this week. And other people come with their face on the ground. And they can't even consider the idea of looking inside and the thought that God is on their side. That's not the basis for it. It's not by looking around us at our circumstances that convince us that, that God is on our side. Have all my problems gone away? Or will they disappear now? That's not the measure of that God is on our side. Rather, it is looking to Christ alone that can convince us. See, Christ was raised from the grave to convince us that God is incomprehensibly powerful and great. And Christ was given as a way for us to the Father to be called his children in order that we would grasp again over and over that he is inexhaustibly kind, merciful, and gracious to us. And so the gospel isn't something that only creates the condition of forgiveness. The condition of forgiveness is a necessary condition, but it's not, the end, it's not the end game. The end game of forgiveness 
is for the greater purpose of showing us and convincing us of what is true about God definitively. More than all of the Old Testament ever does in all of its examples, all of its patterns, all of its people, definitively in Christ. So that is why we gather. It's to get to our Savior and grasp all that God will shed on us, all of the light in our life to help us. Would you please stand with me? I'm going to sing in just a moment. And in conclusion, I'm going to read the New Testament exposition of Psalm 118, verse 6. The Apostle Paul said it better than any preacher ever has. What shall we say to these things if God is for us? Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus has died. More than that, he's been raised. He's at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. Who then shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? That is as written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.